Amen. Well, we will, I think, uh, no applause, please, conclude our broken study tonight. And uh, so everybody can uh, recover from uh, these last five weeks and where we've looked at these various things that sabotage our uh, lives as believers, character and anxiety and attitude control. Last week was gratitude and Tonight we're going to look at this issue of the boiling point, which is anger. So it should be fun. It should be a, a blessing. Amen. So you can open your Bibles to Genesis. Well, I think you can start in Genesis 34. It'd be a good place. So I felt like what we needed to do was have a good, uh, you know, since I'm preaching on anger, I thought it would be good if uh, I developed a sermon a typical Sunday night sermon outline would have, uh, I don't know, last week probably had about, I think, 21 sermon slides. Tonight has 71. So what I'm going to do is make Donald angry so we can use him as our illustration for anger. Because he is going to be freaking out when I start going and he's flipping through all those sermon slides. Uh, but don't, don't be dismayed. It just means that we're going to be dealing with a lot of Old Testament narratives, and there's a lot of words. It doesn't mean it's going to take any more time than anything else. It, uh, words are just words. So let's pray and get started and let the Lord instruct us about this issue of anger. Father, we thank you tonight that you've given us an opportunity to be together before your word, Lord. Thank you for this perfect, inerrant, wonderful gift that you've given us. And Father, what we need tonight is for you to instruct us and help us and teach us. Lord, we have much to learn on this issue, uh, many issues, Lord, but tonight as you speak to us on this issue of anger, Father, help us to see clearly that which you'd have us to know. I pray, Father, that you would lay me aside and speak through me, Lord, and that we might uh, receive your word by the gift of ears to hear and hearts that will receive for your glory. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So with each of these, I think there's a component when we start to talk about something like anger or with gratitude or attitudes or all the other ones that maybe, um, you know, I always think about all the uh, misconceptions that we go into a talk like this with. And, and I don't just mean that you have misconceptions. I mean, we all have misconceptions. And so what we want to do is just lay ourselves down before the Word of God and let it instruct us about what we should be thinking and understanding about a particular topic. And certainly, anger is one where there's many misconceptions about what we should know or believe about it. And um, it's something that clearly the Bible teaches us that we need to understand anger and we need to know how to handle anger. Because anger is something that we all have, that we all face, that we all have to deal with, and both in us and with others. And so it's a two-sided coin, and what we really need is understanding and then the ability to handle it and deal with it with ourselves first and then with others as we come in contact with them. Now, it didn't take long for anger to spring up in Scripture. We didn't get far into the, the, the narrative of God's redemptive process before anger reared its ugly head. So we're uh, Genesis chapter 4, we encounter anger for the first time where uh, the Lord respected the offering of Abel, Abel but, uh, you know, he, it was Cain who was miffed by 
the Lord's response. And the Bible says in Genesis 4, verse 5, But he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain became very angry, and his confidence fell. Now notice what God says. Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Now this is a very interesting uh, transition here. Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. In other words, it, God doesn't instruct Cain not to be angry. He just simply asks him, why are you angry? And then he instructs him about dealing with his anger. That what he's angry about, God says the resolution to this situation is to do that which you ought to do, and then it will resolve itself. But if you don't, if you don't know how to handle this anger that you have, then the warning is, is that sin lies at the door. That this mishandled, misdirected anger is going to overtake you and rule over you. It's misappropriated anger, maybe. And what happens is, is that when anger is handled wrongly, it's, uh, it's like the dynamite of the human personality. And that dynamite, when it explodes, the shrapnel of anger is going to injure and maim all those who are around you. And so it's not only uh, devastating to the person who's angry, but also to the people that are close to them. And so it, anger, if we don't understand it, will make us do things that we never thought we'd do. It will make us become someone that we never wanted to become. If we, if we let our anger be misdirected. But here it seems like that what the Lord is leading Cain to do is to let his anger motivate him to do the right thing. To take this anger that he has and turn it around and do that which is right. Now I think that to really, uh, I mean there's so many proverbs about anger. There's so many places about anger. But there's some specific passages that I think are most helpful, especially this passage that will come up in Ephesians 4 because it, it takes an Old Testament passage on anger from Psalms 4 and then brings it into the New Testament. Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore put away lying, let each of one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And then he says, Be angry and do not sin, quoting Psalms, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And so I think that here we can see that uh, the context is, is that even righteous anger, which is good anger, I mean the command here is to be angry, not to not be angry, which is what we would think. We would think that what we should do is not be angry, like you never want to be angry. That would be a great quality to never be angry but that's not what the bible says the bible says to be angry but not to let the sun go down on your anger so i would submit to you tonight so in case you were just kind of thinking oh that i don't really want to listen to this or this probably isn't going to be anything that uh i haven't heard before well good because i would submit to you that it's a sin not to be angry that that's a sin that the Bible commands that you ought to be angry. In fact, it's clear as a bell. You ought to be an angry person. But you need to know how to handle your anger. You need to know how to appropriate your anger. You, 
a person void of anger? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. It's got some other issues. Now, I know that I've said this many times, and I will probably forever say this many times because I think every single time I say it, uh, someone new is around or someone who's heard it a few times has forgotten it. But it's just one of those truths that I just think can never be pounded into our heart deep enough, long enough, and sustained there, uh, you know, uh, well enough. And this is, is that the opposite of love is not hate. It's not hate. And when you think the opposite of love is hate, then you are already on your way to misunderstanding anger. The opposite of love is indifference. You should all know this. I promise you I've said this 12 times in the last year. It's very important to understand this. That, the, that listen, I, when you love something, you are definitely going to hate something that's hurting what you love. What is the opposite of love is indifference. And that's very, very important. I mean, boy, I wish I had understood that when, uh, when Lisa and I first had children. If I'd have known this and I would have been able to uh, apply this to the duration of raising my children, it would have been so, so much more helpful to me to, to be able to know uh, just how to appropriate my feelings about things. Now, why would I say that it's a sin to not be angry? Well, because uh, to be angry is part of being made in the image of a perfect God. Who, if you remember in Nehemiah chapter 9, we just sang it in that last song. Uh, the Bible says that, But you are God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger. Right? That's not the, I mean, the, the Bible describes God as slow to anger all over the place. In the book of Exodus, when Moses uh, saw the glory of God, God revealed himself to Moses, and then he said, I'm a God who's slow to anger. He says in Psalm 103, verse 8 and 9, the Bible says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. Uh, he's not always, he, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. So clearly, God, who is perfect, in every way, is an angry God. It says he's slow to anger. It doesn't say he's void of anger. So what we want to do is we want to have anger like God has anger. We want to be able to manage our anger the way God does because God is a loving God. And he has anger towards sin because sin is trying to destroy that which he loves. And if you hated something then you would be indifferent to the fact that sin was trying to destroy it. But if you loved something and something was trying to destroy that, you would then be angry. My question is not, would you be angry if something was trying to destroy something you love? I know the answer to that. For all of us, it's of course we would. My question is, what will you do with the anger? And you know how God has such a sense of humor in the way he will... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always... Uh, surprised and then wonder why I'm surprised but whatever I'm studying whatever's going on in my uh, preparation for various sermons and series God is always orchestrating the random events of my life around those things and teaching me all sorts of various lessons and I had a great 
lesson with regard to this the other day. We, we, uh, Lisa and I were sitting at the house, and uh, she said, hey, I want to watch this show. Somebody was saying something to her about it. You know, She said, I, I want to watch this show. And I said, okay, let's watch it. So we sit down. Five minutes later, I'm like, why am I watching this show? And no, it wasn't a, a cooking show or a gardening show or some HGTV thing. It's called In an Instant. So we sit down and watch this show. Well, anyway, basically, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but it's about these near-death experiences and how people get through stuff and all. So we're watching this show, and this uh, lady goes over to her ex-husband's house to pick up the kids, and he whacks her over the head with a baseball bat, puts her inside of a, tapes her head with duct tape. I'll, I'll spare you all the gory details. Puts her inside a garbage can. Now, mind you, with these two little girls playing dolls in the other room, puts her in a garbage can. To, it's snowing like crazy outside. Goes outside. It's in uh, the dead of winter in Illinois. Uh, puts the two little girls, buckles them in the car seat, gives them a lollipop, goes back in, and comes out dragging a, uh, a, a rolling garbage can with his half-dressed wife taped up in, in, in the garbage can, and then he lays it down in the yard and starts filling it with snow. Then he picks it up, puts it in the back of his pickup truck. It's freezing cold, puts a tarp over, and goes, starts driving down the highway. And meanwhile, she's still alive, bound up in this thing, and so it's telling the story. Well, I, I don't want to watch this. And so I'm watching this. And as I'm watching this, I can feel my blood pressure raising. Because whenever I watch something like that, what happens to me is I begin to think about what if someone was doing that to someone I loved? And so I'm, I start identifying with, the, with this person. And so, you know, then you know, she's calling family members and they're gathered together and all this is going on. And so before I know it, I've sort of slipped off into this, you know, what if my daughter married someone who put his hands on her and I am ready to kill? I mean, I'm so fired up I could just kill somebody with my bare hands. And I'm just, I don't even know these people. I'm just watching TV. And I've got rage coming out of my ears. And about that time, you know, and Lisa's, we're sitting there trying to figure out if she's going to live or die. About that time, Kayla comes in and she's like, hey, Dad, how you doing? I said, sit down, we need to have a talk. And I'm like, if anybody ever even thinks about, you know, and she's like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, I will kill them. Whoo, where did that come from? Now, here's the thing. There's this righteous anger in the sense that there's something that I love, and then I start imagining if some terrible thing, someone was trying to hurt something that I love. But here's what happens. I immediately went to this righteous anger that will protect something that I love, but I left protection way in the dust. I went past protection, and I started going to, I've got you in a garbage can, and I'm putting snow on you, and I'm going to wind your face up with duct tape. I mean, you know, it just, 
what, what's happening here? You see, so something starts out right, and then it goes awry. Genesis 34 is the story of Jacob. Now, Jacob's got a, a, pretty, uh, a, a pretty lively story in him and his sons. And, and, you know, he's got some, some problems as a father, but he's Jacob. He's God's man. His sons are the, become the 12 tribes of Israel. But he didn't just have sons. He had daughters, too. And one of his daughter's name was Dinah. And so we're going to look at this Dinah incident from Genesis 34. Genesis 34, 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, so now you're putting the pieces together, whom he had, who had been born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and he lay with her and he violated her. Verse 3. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. So he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. Now right here, I'm ready to kill somebody. See, and, and I'm just reading the Bible. Dinah's not my daughter, but all of a sudden I'm engaged in what's happening. So... Dinah just goes out to the countryside and this Shechem, and there's so many things about this that bother me. It bothers me that he's a prince. That bothers me because he thinks he's entitled. It bothers me that he just snatches up this uh, poor girl and he violates her. So, I mean, this isn't, this isn't the kind of rape that we would have in the context of today. But nonetheless, this is, in an Old Testament scenario, this is rape. We'll just say that. And so he violates her. Uh, but then the Bible says, but he was strongly attracted to her. And, and he goes to his dad and he says, I, I want a, her as a wife. Verse 5, and Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field, and they heard it. And the men were grieved and were very angry because he had done this disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not be done. So the brothers come back, and they're furious. They have every reason to be furious. Everybody certainly has justification here to be furious. There's been a terrible thing that's happened. The Bible says it ought not be done. It shouldn't have happened. It's a bad thing. And so... Uh, then uh, Shechem's father, Hamor, begins to uh, petition for Dinah's hand in marriage to Shechem. Verse 11, then Shechem said to his father and his brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. What, ask me uh, ever so much dowry and gifts, and I will give according to what you say to me, and give me to give me this young woman as a wife. And so, basically, the the plea is: Listen, whatever you require, I just want to marry this girl, and I will do whatever it takes to make this right. Well, the problem is, is that Jacob is looking at these uh, two foreigners, and he's saying, "Well, I mean, I can't give my wife, my daughter to be married to." Uh, some pagan young man. So Jacob answers Shechem. Look at verse 15. But on this condition, we will consent to you. 
If you will become as we are. So now it's this, if, uh, if every male of you is circumcised. So if you become one of us, then things will be okay. Uh, you forsake your past and your heritage and you join ours. Verse 16, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and uh, we will dwell with you and we will become one people. So Shechem, his father, I mean, that is a pretty bold that's a lot more than any dowry or any gift. I mean, that's a lot to ask. So Shechem, his father, and all the men with him, all their servants, are circumcised. They are like, okay, no problem. Verse 25. So it came to pass then on the third day. So everything's been resolved. came to pass on the third day uh, that while they were out in the plain, that the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers... Each took his sword, and they came boldly upon the city, and they killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword. And they took Dinah from Shechem's house, and they went out. The sons of Jacob came upon, came upon the slain, and they plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, their donkeys, uh, it, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth. All their little ones and their wives were taken captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. So what happens is these two brothers, in their fury over what has happened, they just can't seem to get over it. They can't seem to get over uh, what their father has done and what's happened, and they, uh, they want vengeance. And so they don't just go and, and kill Shechem. They don't just go and get their sister back. They kill everybody, and they plunder the land, steal everything, take the women and children. I mean, it's a, it's a mass, you know, slaughter. Verse 30, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious amongst the inhabitants of the land and amongst the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me, and I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? Now, that is a very instructive passage about anger. Because here you have some brothers who are certainly justified in their anger. And yet their anger gets the best of them. Their anger gets away with them. And they respond in what maybe started out to be the right motivation, took it way too far. And then at the end, you get a glimpse into what the, what the real issue is, is that, well, hey, they've done wrong. They shouldn't have treated our sister like a harlot. And their response to their father is, hey, are you going to let them get away with this? Are you just going to turn your back on this and let this be? Not only Jacob would say, did you rise up and kill them? But you, you killed innocent people. You shed innocent blood. You pillaged things that were not yours to pillage. You plundered things that were not yours to plunder. You, you took this too far. The Bible says in Romans 12 that we should repay no evil for evil. Well, Levi and his brother Simeon, they let their anger get away from them. To which I think most people today in the United States would say, well, hey, Shechem and his folks had it coming. You know, what Shechem did, he got what he deserved. 
Okay. But my question for you is, how does God feel about what happened? Not, not how does Jacob feel. How does God feel? What does God have to say about Levi and Simeon? Well, Genesis 49. We get the rest of the story. Jacob comes to the end of his life. Genesis 49, verse 1, Jacob calls his sons in and he said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in these last days. So he's passing from life to death. Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. So he turns. Son number one, he says, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of Dignity and the excellency of power. Verse 4, but unstable as water. You shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. You see, you remember that incident where Reuben in Genesis 35 and Bilhah, one of uh, Jacob's concubines, and Jacob found out about it and he said, you've defiled your father's bed. He goes on and says, so you defiled it and you went up to my couch. So you're out. Now this is Jacob, Israel. He's now giving the inheritance to these 12 sons, which is the inheritance of the kingdom, right? So Reuben, you're the firstborn. You're out. You don't ever hear anybody say anything about Reuben today. Reuben, you know, is just basically of no consequence whatsoever. And yet he is the firstborn of Jacob. He ought to be the one we talk about at all. So he's done. He's out. All he gets is a sandwich. Verse 5. Y'all are slow. Verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. So let's go to son number 2 and son number 3. But your instruments of cruelty in their dwelling place... Let not my soul enter their counsel. So he's like, I don't want anything to do with you. I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not putting myself in your uh, assembly. Let not my honor be united with your assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. See, the anger itself is not what's bad the problem is is that their anger was fierce it's not that any anger was there it's just that their anger was fierce and their wrath for it is cruel i will divide them jacob and i will scatter them in israel so the inheritance of jacob is the kingdom and here you have the lineage of the son of god that's coming through this line of Jacob, through these 12 tribes. And what you have is no Reuben, no Simeon, no Levi. You don't have the, the, the lion of Reuben. You don't have the lion of Simeon. You don't have the lion of Levi. You have the lion of Judah. Judah's the fourth-born son. The, the Savior comes through the lineage. So the, the, the consequence of the first three sons' sin is they lost the kingdom. It's not, it, 
Do you understand the, the significance of the fact that it would have been that the Son of God would have come and would have been named as the Lion of Reuben forevermore, for all of history? It would have been through his lineage. Nope. Simeon, no. Levi, no. Anger. You see, what, with Reuben, we get, well, sexual immorality. I mean, we have that in, in this special category. But anger, come on. You know, I just, I got a bad temper. I lose my temper. My temper gets the best of me. I inherited from my father. Or it's just the way I've always been. Or we make all these excuses. Well, really? It's interesting to me that no one has ever said to me, though they probably would if they thought they could get away with it, but no one has ever said to me, Pastor, I can't help it. I'm just a fornicator. I got it from my father. He was a fornicator. We're all just fornicators. No one says that. But everybody will jump right on that bandwagon when it comes to anger. That somehow anger is so much more permissible. Then I mean, you know, so I lost my cool. So what I'm going to do is just go back and apologize for it and everything will be fine. They lost the kingdom. It's gone. There's no line of Levi. It's over. Simeon, done. History. That's harsh. That tells me something about the way God views anger going awry. And then you might think to yourself, well, I don't know, that, that's a... That's just one instance of this obscure Old Testament story. Of, I mean, who knows anything about Dinah? Who really knows the, the detail? I don't know. You know, it just, I don't know. It's, it's just anger. I mean, is that really enough to, to, to build a case on? I don't know. What about Saul? What about the first king of Israel? The one who has everything handed to him on a silver platter. He's the people want a king. Saul's the first king. Saul uh, gets himself mixed up in all sorts of implications. He starts getting threatened in his kingdom. There's a lot of complex things going on. He dishonors the Lord by overstepping his bounds and sacrificing in place of you know, the priesthood in 1 Samuel 13. And God pronounces that he's going to lose the kingdom. He then turns around in utter wrath. And his wrath towards David is just uh, fully documented through Scripture where he's just obsessed with killing David. He loses the kingdom. David comes along. And what about David? David almost lost the kingdom. That's what I love about David. He's, he's so human. 1 Samuel 21. These will come up on the uh, screen or you can flip over to 1 Samuel 21. I want to look at this passage from 1 Samuel 21. I have a story in David's life and his issue with anger. So we've got Dinah and we've got Jacob and, and Simeon and Levi. And now we're going to look at David. 1 Samuel 21, uh, Samuel has just died. And verse 2 says, Now there was a man whose business was in Carmel. Now, uh, every time I read this, I always chuckle to myself. Because if we're somewhere, my wife and me will go round and round. She'll say, it's caramel. And I'll say, no, it's not. It's caramel. And she'll say, it's caramel. And I said, well, nobody's ever reading the Bible and said he was from a land of caramel. <laughs> Just putting that out there if you've been wondering. It's caramel. 
So anyway, and so the man was very rich. I just do that to make her angry so I can teach her about anger. Okay, so the man was very rich. So here's this man who's very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And his, the name of this man was Nabal. So Nabal uh, was rich and he was married to a, a wife named Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings, and he was of the house of Caleb. So this is Caleb, one of the 12 spies, that Caleb and Joshua Caleb. So he's one of, this Nabal character is apparently a real slime ball, but he's got this amazing wife named Abigail. And so if you're someone in your family or your middle name's Abigail or something, that's a fabulous name to name somebody because it's spectacular what God teaches us about this Abigail in Scripture. So... So David evidently is, is, this is a point in David's life where he's uh, running around, he's got his men, and he's, uh, he's out in Carmel because he's, you know, people are trying to kill him, and so he's uh, in between, you know, at a, at a low point in his life, I guess you could say. And Nabal and all of his flocks have come into the region, and they're going to begin shearing, which is a pretty extensive process, especially for somebody who has this vast amount of wealth and, and uh, animals. And so uh, what happens is David watches over his animals, makes sure that he's protected, makes sure that nobody takes advantage of him. In fact, we find out that David's men even helped some of Nabal's men with, with the, the shearing and the animals and all that. And so David needs some provisions. He needs some food. Now, he's not asking for much. He just needs a little bit of food. So in verse 10, uh, you know, he, he asks Nabal, hey, will you give us some food? We're hungry. Just some simple things. Verse 10. But Nabal responds to David's servants. So David sends his servants in. We go ask Nabal if he'll, you know, repay our kindness to him and give us some food. So Nabal responds to David's servants and says, who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away, each one from his master. That is hilarious to me. Who is David? David is the most famous person uh, in the entire region. Everyone knows who David is. David killed Goliath 35 miles from here. Trust me, Nabal knows who David is. Everyone knows who David is. Not only that, he's, he knows that it's Jesse's son, and yet he's, he's just being a smart aleck. Oh, I don't know, David. Who does David think he is? Oh, so then he says, verse 11, So shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men whom I do not know or where they are from? So David's young men uh, turned their heels, and they went back, and they came and told him all these words. Now, here's, here's the scene. Imagine you're some of David's mighty men, and he sent you in to go and ask Nabal for some provisions. So they go in, and there's like, hey, you know, we're with David, and, you know, we've you know, been glad to help you out, but we need some provisions, and you evidently have tons of provisions, so we need some. And so he doesn't just say no. He just totally is a jerk about it and he tries to slam David personally and he tries to I mean he makes it personal now David's men you just have to know David and know the history of him and his men this is what they he says that and they go okay and they just go walking off they're like no problem you know and all the way back they're thinking 
Boy, is he going to regret saying that. David is not who you would want to cross. I mean, this guy is a warrior of warriors. And he obliterated anyone who came before him. And so if he wanted to, and so when he says that, when Nabal says that, I'm sure David's men are like, okay. So they go back and tell David. Verse 13, then David said to his men, I mean, just calm as he can be. Okay, every man gird on his sword. So every man girds on his sword, and David also put his sword on. Just the Bible wants you to know David's like, oh, I ain't missing out on this, so I'm putting my sword on too. So about 400 men went with David, and then 200 stayed there with the supplies. David is so, I mean, he is so skilled as a warrior, he doesn't even need all, he says, no, we're going to leave 200 here. I only need 400. I'm going, I mean, this guy has no idea what he has done. Verse 14. So one of the young men who works for Nabal goes to his wife Abigail, Nabal's wife, and says, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness. Now notice, Nabal doesn't even, who's David? I don't know who David is. His servants are like, oh, that's David. His own servants going. So his servant goes to Abigail and says, listen, David, you know David, David, you know Goliath, the whole that guy. Well, your ignoramus husband just totally ticked him off, and it's not going to go well. So, I mean, they know what the deal is. Abigail knows who David is. Everyone knows. Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our masters, and he reviled them. Verse 15. But the men were very good to us, and they didn't hurt us, nor did we miss anything as long as... You see, this is what they're saying. They've been awesome. They've watched over us. They've protected us. They've made sure nobody's harassed us. I mean, David and his men were honorable in every way. Both day and night, all the time, we were with them keeping the sheep. Verse 17, now therefore, know and consider what you will do. I mean, this servant is like, hello, for harm is determined against our master and against all of his household, which, by the way, would include me and would include you. So we got a problem. For he is such a scoundrel, talking about Nabal, your husband, I mean, this guy must be a dirtbag when even his servants say to his wife, you know, your husband, the scoundrel, that one cannot speak to him. In other words, he's like, I can't even go to him and tell him, are you insane? What do you mean? You're reviling David? I mean, this guy is spectacular. And who's he married to? Abigail. Doesn't that just break your heart? Here's this amazing lady with this deadbeat husband. Hmm. Verse 18, so Abigail, what does she do? She made haste. And she takes 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five sheaves of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, uh, 200 cakes of figs, loaded them on donkeys. Listen, that's like five times what David asked for in the first place. She's like, we are bringing Walmart to David and his men. We're getting the whole entire Golden Corral buffet and bringing it out there to him. And maybe, just maybe, he won't cut all of our heads off. Verse 19. 
And she said to her servants, go, go on before me. Uh, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Boy, this guy is something. So here they go, headed out, loaded donkeys, all this stuff. Meanwhile, David and his 400 men, they're just slowly trotting into the, you know, the field because, you know, I mean, they know what's about to go down. David is about to give Nabal just what Nabal deserves. Here's the thing. Is David this menacing bully? No. He is a peacekeeper. He's the Old Testament version of uh, the United States of America who, who are constantly trying to protect and serve people who don't even appreciate our protection. Trying to, uh, you know, make sure that people aren't abused. Making sure that people aren't taken advantage of. David, David just doesn't have anything to do with Nabal. If David wanted to, he could have taken everything Nabal has. But instead, he protected him. He was good to him. He was kind to him. He looked after him. He was a blessing to him. And this guy reviles him. He returns all this kindness. And he just is a complete jerk about it. And so this guy has certainly got it coming. And David is about to deliver Verse 23, so Abigail sees David. She's on a donkey. Remember, the, guy, the servants are out in front with all the stuff. She comes riding up behind. She sees David. Now look at what she does. She dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before God, and bowed down to the ground. I'm telling you, Abigail, remember that this woman is spectacular. She jumps off the donkey flies onto the dirt, face down in front of David. She fell at his feet and she says, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. Oh, I should have saved this for Mother's Day. This lady is fantastic. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, I, 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 my parents told me not to marry him. I knew he was a jerk. But, you know, I, I thought I could fix him. I thought I could reform him. You know the story. But I was adding that's not in the text. So, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name. And folly is with him. It just means he's, his name means foolish. But I, your maidservant, I did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. You see, I wasn't there. I wasn't paying. I didn't know. And then my servant came and told me. I didn't see all that. It went down. If I would have saw that, I would have never told him what he said. Now therefore, then, now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself and your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now... This present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Ho, ho. Here this lady is, this Abigail out of nowhere. This spectacular woman of great wisdom and understanding. She jumps off of the donkey with all of this stuff. And she said, put it all on me. It's all my fault. 
I put all of his iniquity on me. And please receive this offering. And she says, she continues to bring the Lord's name in. And then she knows who David is. And she says, for you, you fight the battles of the Lord. You're the Lord's man. You're the anointed one. Evil's not found in you throughout these days. What you're about to do is a mistake. You're about to slaughter innocent people. You're about to kill me. My husband is a scoundrel. Notice she doesn't deny that. She says he's a jerk. But don't kill everybody because he's a jerk. Boy, the same situation that we found with Jacob's sons. Here's a woman who takes all the blame on herself. And who ministers to the heart of the great David who has wisdom that here's this great warrior and he's totally caught off guard by this little woman on a donkey. Verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, Wow, I want to meet Abigail. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. This is David's response. All the men, I mean, they are ready to roll. They got their swords. I mean, they are in, they're in showtime mode. And they're thinking, let's just go around this donkey lady. We're going to get that food anyway. We got business to take care of. That guy reviled you. He said things that went. I mean, they're ready to kill. And David says, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you to meet me. And I'm sure his men were like, huh? Is this going to be another one of those spiritual moments like when we had Saul in the cave, you know, because he ate too many fig cakes and we could have killed him, and you said no. Is it going to be one? I mean, verse 33. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. Wow. And so what happens? So David turns around, and he doesn't go and avenge himself? Is he justified? Does he have every reason to be furious? Does he have every right to be mad? Is the guy that he's mad at just a dirty, rotten scoundrel? Yes! But it's wrong. It's wrong to go and seek revenge, to go and kill people because of all this. And... Abigail speaks right into his heart from the Lord, and he relents. And so David says, you know what, you're right. And he turns around, and he even gives her credit from stopping him from sinning. And so that night, Abigail goes home. Where's Nabal? Drunk as a skunk. The Bible says God turned his heart into a stone, killed him. David comes back a few days later, marries Abigail as his wife. David does the right thing. God takes care of it. God dealt with the situation. David's not the judge and jury. David's not the one who has to execute justice on the earth. But... but but look at what he did. But isn't it wrong for him to treat our sister as a harlot? Yes. But that doesn't justify your wrath. 
that you haven't managed your anger. You've let it go too far. This lady on a donkey. Sound familiar? Someone on a donkey riding up, knowing that they're going to meet a group of people that want to kill them. See, I save these texts for Palm Sunday for a reason. The Lord's riding on a donkey. He's coming into Jerusalem. He knows that the crowd that's cheering is going to turn and want to crucify him. He knows that there's a plot to kill him. But here's the thing I want you to see. It wasn't their wrath that Jesus had to contend with. Okay, think about Abigail. Think about Jesus. Think about these scenarios. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. He knows that they're going to kill him. But it's not their wrath that he has to worry about. It's not their wrath that's the problem. The wrath that's the problem is the wrath of his father. That he knows the wrath of his father is going to come down. You see, he fully knew that all of those who were cheering would kill him. They wanted to kill him. Abigail's riding this donkey towards this menacing picture. This little lady on a donkey. Now, understand something. There's 400 men with swords. These aren't like nicely dressed, you know, preppy men that, you know, work down at the shoe store. These guys are scary. She doesn't back up. She rides right into the midst of all that to David and lays herself down at his feet. Jesus goes right into the wrath of his father. Huh. Who are we in this story? Where are we in Abigail's story? Who are you? And who am I? You're Nabal. You're the scoundrel who's caused the whole problem. You're the one who has brought about all of this issue. Jesus is riding the donkey right into the city where he knows he's going to be crucified because all the Nabals of the world have turned their back on the Lord. And we are, where are we when Jesus is riding the donkey into Jerusalem, the same place Nabal is when Abigail's riding the donkey before David? We're the rotten scoundrels who are just sitting around in our sin. We're the ones who have made this bed now that Jesus has to deal with. Nabal has created this horrific situation that now Abigail has to courageously ride into on a donkey as a picture of one who would come on a donkey. Two examples. One from Jacob and his sons, one from David. Two examples of the kingdom. Two examples of heritage. Two examples of great injustice. Two examples of 
anger that would be fully justified, but two very unbelievably different outcomes. I would submit to you tonight that if it were not for Abigail, we would have a very, very, very different outlook on David. But God knows what he's doing. And so he sends this one. So we don't have the lion of Reuben. We don't have the lion of Levi or Simeon. But we have the lion of Judah. That the kingdom doesn't pass through the sexually immoral. The kingdom doesn't pass through the angry and the cruel. But through Judah, the fourth son. Forever and ever sealed in history, the Savior of the world comes. And the New Testament says it's the Lion of Judah. You don't think anger is a big deal? Why don't you ask Simeon and Levi how big a deal anger is? Look at the price that is paid. Look at the disaster that David escaped. So all the way forward into the New Testament, all the way through the Gospels, all the way through the Epistles, and all the way into the book of Revelation, there's John, the Revelator, with a glimpse of what is to come. And there's a scene in Revelation chapter 5 where John is, is so perplexed as this scroll is materialized, this scroll that, that possesses the, the mystery of the redemptive purposes of God is in this scroll, and it's sealed with seven seals. But here's the problem. No one is found on earth who can open this scroll. No one is worthy to open this scroll. No one, no one. No person on earth, no elder, no angel, no one is righteous enough to open this scroll. And so John, he begins to weep. He begins to cry because no one can open the scroll. And the, the, the scroll must be opened for the, the purposes of God to be completed. That all of eternity is hanging on this moment of who can open the scroll. And the Bible says in Revelation 5 verse 5. But the elder says, John, don't weep. You don't have to weep. It's okay. Behold, the Lion of Judah is coming. The Root of David. Don't you see? That anger, it cost Simeon. It cost Levi. But the Lion of Judah, and who? The Root of who? David, the one who Abigail turned aside. The, one, the only one who could open it has prevailed to open the scroll. To loose the seven seals. I mean... Anger, the pinnacle moment. Where's Levi? Where's Simeon? You, you mean that the lion of Simeon doesn't come and open the scroll? No. Nope. No, the one who comes worthy. 
the one who rode the donkey into Jerusalem, the one who paid the penalty for every single Nabal who has ever been born to this earth, the one who took the wrath of the Father upon himself, who laid himself down on a cross and said, put all of the iniquity on me. Take it all and pile it on my back. You just stack it up as high as it can go. I'm taking every single Nabal's scoundrel sin upon me. I'll take it. I'll take it. And who am I? The Lion of Judah, the Root of David. People who could control their anger. So what are you going to do? Don't leave here tonight and think, what I need to do is not be angry. No. That would be to be indifferent, which would be sin. What you need to do is be righteously angry. You need to be angry at things that seek to destroy things that are for the purposes of God. You should be angry at the things that seek to destroy the people and things that you love. And you should be angry at the things that God are, is angry at. But you better be slow to anger. Don't let your anger get the best of you. Because the consequences are severe. Severe. Don't become a person you don't want to be. Don't do things that you never wanted to do. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know that there was some moment where Simeon and Levi stood utterly bewildered at the forfeiture of their great inheritance. Don't you think that every conceivable apology under the sun would have been rendered? Don't you think that every possible, but dad, I didn't mean it. Dad, I'm sorry. I just, my temper got away with me. Dad, it was wrong what they did to our sister. Dad, I don't know, but don't, don't you think, do you think that anybody was stiff-necked in that moment? Do you think anybody, don't you think that the remorse of what happened hit them like a ton of bricks, and every fiber in their body was sorry for what had happened. But it was too late. It's too late. Kingdom gone. The only one worthy to open the scroll is the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. Let's stand.